You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. So I'm going to read uh, our text this morning from the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and then we're going to pray. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Father, today we ask your special blessing upon Pastor Jeff and his wife. God, would you be refreshing his spirit and his soul during this time away? Would you bring he and Sally together uh, in a way that they've not experienced before as they seek your face? God, we just ask your blessing upon their lives. And today we pray for uh, many pastors who are standing to proclaim God's word around the world today. May they do so with boldness and under the power of the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray for our time here this morning that you would speak to each person who is in this room this morning. We all come from different places. And God, we all have needs. And you're the only one that can meet those needs, Lord. So we ask you to do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, back to your pastor, the more that I get to know him, the more that I see some great qualities in his life. But two of the most prominent qualities that I see is a love for God and a love for the Word of God. And we share that same love. I love the the Word of God uh, because it's like a compass and a map. It helps us to know where we are, and it helps us to know where to go. There's a lot of talk today in Christian circles about being and doing. You know, uh, the importance of being in Christ and, and being with Jesus and doing, doing the works that, that he's called us to do. I think that we may have a problem 
today because we have the being and the doing out of order. Paul addresses this in his letters, and most of the letters that he writes, the first half of the letters is a theological foundation describing who God is and who we are in Him. That's the being aspect. And then the second half of the book, he talks about the practical application of that theology, that is what we do as a result of who we are. That's the doing aspect of it. But I think this problem is directly related to a misunderstanding of the simplicity and the centrality of the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel has gotten complicated today, it seems like. Over time, we've moved from simplicity to complexity with our unceasing activities of doing. This has replaced our once unwavering affections when it comes to being. Now we think we have to pile on and do more and more things for God, pushing the gospel of grace to the periphery of our lives. So the centrality of the gospel has been displaced from the center of our lives, and now it's easy to fall into a performance-driven attitude that we need to do more and more and more things to gain approval and acceptance from God and others in the name of growth in Christ. Here's what I want us to help us see today. Growth in Christ is never going beyond the gospel. It's going deeper into the gospel. And going deeper into the gospel means simplifying it. See, religion pours it on. It's more, it's more, it's more, more activity, more doing, more programs, more practices, more this and more that. The gospel pours it out. The focus is on Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. So where do we begin? Martin Luther said, always begin again. We must embrace the love and kindness of God and exercise our faith therein, entertaining no doubt of God's love and kindness. So go deep in the gospel and make it central in your life with Jesus as your first love. Now, I don't know you. I've not met most of you. But I have a hunch. And the hunch is this, that there might be some of you here this morning with an original white hot passionate first love for Jesus that has become cold and a calloused dutiful life of going through the motions even though you might be still doing some good things some good works this leads me to the big idea for today and it's this Going deep in the gospel of grace 
means we're living out our new identity as gospel-centered disciples with Jesus as our first love. Tim Keller said, it's one thing to understand the gospel, but it's quite another to experience the gospel in such a way that it fundamentally changes us and becomes the source of our security and our identity. See, I believe today that we need a reawakening to the gospel, a call to live gospel-centered lives See, gospel-centered people are not just ordinary people. They're people that are focused on Jesus. Their first love is Jesus. Their affections and desires are to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to honor Christ by loving him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to delight in Christ with the same excitement that a child delights in when seeing presents under the tree on Christmas morning and to gaze on the beauty of Christ and respond like I did the first time that I saw the the Grand Canyon, the only thing that I could say was, wow, wow, what a beautiful sight to behold. These are people that seek and are hungry for a fresh encounter with Christ daily so their hearts are stirred for Christ because they continually abide in Jesus. So what I'm saying to you this morning is very simple. The gospel of grace is not about good people becoming better by what they can do. It's about God making dead people alive together with Christ by what he did. And then living as gospel-centered disciples with Jesus as their first love. Do you see the contrast between these statements? Good people, dead people. Better, alive. What they can do, what God did. So when we look at this contrast, there are two ways to orient our lives. One is religion, that is doing more and more works in hopes to find favor with God. And the second is the gospel, that is trusting Jesus and what he did on the cross. When we get out of orientation that way, it becomes problematic. Here's an illustration. In 1914, not long after the sinking of the Titanic... The Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another nautical tragedy. In January of that year, in thick fog off the Virginia coast, the steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. While it was Osmond Berry, the captain of the Nantucket, who was arraigned on the charges, in the course of the trial, Captain Edward Johnson was grilled on the stand for over five hours. And during cross-examination, it was learned that Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. Only two degrees. Just two. That faulty compass that seemed adequate for navigation eventually proved otherwise, and 41 sailors lost their lives. 
The point is, there are consequences when it comes to misorientation. So the question for us today is, how are we orienting our life? How are you orienting your life? Is it by the compass of religion or is it by the compass of the gospel? Do our lives deviate from the standard magnetic compass of the Word of God? Now, in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at a special group of people today, the church at Ephesus, and I'm calling this the Ephesian experience in three parts. The first one, the Ephesian experience in part one, provides a context for our text. So when we think back, Paul, the Apostle Paul, went to Ephesus on his second and his third missionary journey. The second time he was there, he found 12 disciples, but they were just disciples of John the Baptist. And Paul told them to believe in the one that came after John, that is Jesus, and they did and received the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 19. Paul spent three years from about A.D. 52 to 53 there, beginning in the synagogue and reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And the, and the Bible makes an astounding statement in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. It says, all the residents of Asia, let that sink in a minute, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What do you think they heard? What do you think the message was that Paul communicated to them? Now, we know that Ephesus was an important port city on the west coast of Asia. In fact, it was the third largest city in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. The temple of Artemis, or Diana, was located there. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But Ephesus was also prominent early Christianity next to Jerusalem and Antioch and Rome. And in Ephesus, Paul worked with a group of leaders called elders or overseers. And when Paul left Ephesus, headed west, about a year and a half later, he came to a place called Miletus, and he called for the Ephesian elders to come because he wanted to give them the last charge, so to speak, that they would ever hear from his own lips. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. For three years in Ephesus, that's what Paul communicated. That was his message. The simplicity of the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul knew firsthand about the gospel of grace. When we look at his life, Paul was a very, very religious man before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, studied under the, the greatest Hebrew scholar of the time. He was a very religious man, but when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, God made him alive together with Christ, which changed his total identity. 
And from that point on, he lived out his new identity as a gospel-centered disciple with Jesus, with Jesus as his first love. So, Paul went from there in Ephesus to Jerusalem, on to Rome. It was there that he wrote this letter to the church, approximately A.D. 60 to 62, from prison in Rome. So what do we learn from the Ephesian experience, part one? Number one, Paul knew firsthand about the simplicity of the gospel of grace. Not only did he understand it, he experienced it, and it changed the orientation of his life. The orientation of his life went from religion and works-centered orientation to a relationship with Jesus and a gospel-centered orientation. This was the life that he lived and the message that he shared with the people at Ephesus for three years, and that bore fruit. The church was established, and leaders were put into place, and people's lives were changed as they applied the simplicity and the centrality of the gospel to their lives. That leads us to the Ephesian experience, part two. Paul loved these people. He loved to strengthen churches and the people in churches, taking them deeper into the gospel. And he did, one of the ways he did this was by prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 17, he prayed for the people of Ephesus, a marvelous prayer. Look what he says. He prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Throughout the Bible, we see the greatness of God on display. And he's been working out his plan of gospel salvation from the very before the very beginning of time. And the paragraph from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 is Paul's fullest account of God's plan of salvation. And following this prayer in chapter 1, there are two pivotal phrases that show up in our text. The first one is found in verse 1. Circle this in your Bible. And you. And you. The second one is found in verse 4. But God. But God. After all the theological richness of Paul's prayer laid out in this previous passage, he says, and you, and you. 
we see the true condition of humankind sandwiched between the greatness of God in chapter 1 and the character of God that he's going to unveil in, chapters, in chapter 2, verses 4 and following. But the three truths about the simplicity of the grace of God applied to the Ephesians is what I want to get to now. First, Paul speaks about the simplicity of knowing who they were. These people had a past. We all have a past, don't we? Part of it, we share. Part of it, we don't want to share. These people had a past. In verse 1, Paul reminds them they are spiritually dead. Hopeless. Helpless. They failed to meet God's standard of holiness. This simply means that they were separated from God. Like Paul was before his Damascus Road experience, he was separated from God. A religious man, yes. Doing good works, yes. But he was separated from God. And so too were the Ephesians. I like what Dane Ortland says. Jesus was sent not to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. These people were dead spiritually. Verse 2 and 3, they were enslaved by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Everything that was antagonistic to God was being used to manipulate them and, and influence their lives. And they probably didn't even have a clue that that was happening in their lives. Not only were they separated from God, but they were being led away from God, not toward God. You might be thinking, hey, that doesn't sound like me. I grew up in a good home, kept the rules, went to church, helped out people in need. And Paul is simply saying, we can be immoral dead people or we can be moral dead people. The point is, dead is dead. The third thing we see here in verse 3 is they were condemned and deserving of the wrath of God. The end game was spiritual death. That is an eternal separation from God. You might be thinking, oh, you know, I thought God was a God of love. Well, what's this wrath business? J.I. Packer comments and he says the classical new treatment New Testament treatment of the wrath of God is found in the book of Romans. It contains more explicit references to God's wrath than all of Paul's letters put together. The wrath of God in Romans denotes God's resolute action in punishing sin. It's the active manifestation of God's hatred of irreligion and moral evil. It's an expression of his justice. The point is, God will punish sin. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes on in Romans chapter 3 verse 9 and he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks God. Then Isaiah in the Old Testament, writing hundreds of years before this, writes and says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Filthy rags. There is nothing that we can do on our own to make us righteous before a holy God. This picture of condemned humanity is so repulsive and so repugnant that it's hard for people to wrap their modern mind around this truth. But it is true according to the perfect magnetic compass of the Word of God. Now, this picture of human condition is really dark, isn't it? Over 40 years ago, I walked into a jewelry store looking for a diamond engagement ring for my fiancé at the time, who later became my wife, who is still my wife, who's the grandmother of three, uh, the mother of three kids, the grandmother of 12 kids, with one on the way. Same gal. I was looking for a ring that... It had to be just the right one. I think I found it. I told the jeweler, I, I said, I, it's that one right there. You know what the first thing he did was? I thought he'd reach in there and get the ring out. First thing he did was he reached into his pocket and pulled out this dark cloth. And he laid it on the, on the display case. And I thought, what in the world is he doing? And then he reached in and got that diamond and he put it on that dark cloth and pa! It glistened like I had never seen anything glisten before. This is what Paul was doing. He's doing something similar right here. He's showing them not only the grossness of their human condition, but their inability to do anything to save themselves. It is impossible for dead people to save themselves. This is what they were. The simplicity of who they were is this, in a nutshell, dead spiritually they weren't drowning in a pool that where they needed a life preserver they were at the laying at the bottom of the pool dead that's the picture then we see paul speaks of the simplicity of knowing what god did so the and you represents the dark cloth of the human condition. Then he brings out the diamond. He says, but God. 
Don't you love but God? I hear your pastor uses but God a lot around here. But God. But God. The focus is on God. And his multifaceted character is on display against the backdrop of their dead condition. And in verse 4, we begin to see the greatness of God. It says, enrich in mercy and great love. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, which is the wrath of God. God has to punish sin. But Jesus took our sin on the cross. Love is great because it's unconditional. We cannot earn God's love. He loves us because he loves Maybe you've been mistreated, misunderstood. Maybe you've been abandoned. Maybe you've been taken advantage of in your life. Maybe you've torpedoed your own life. You're having difficulty in believing God's rich in mercy. The evidence of God's mercy is not in your life. It's in Christ's life. And receiving his mercy means it flows into the deepest canyons of your pain and your shame where you experience the great love of God. In verse 5, he talks about the grace of God. By grace, you've been saved. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, which is undeserved favor. All of our experience as human beings tell us we have to earn acceptance, earn love, earn forgiveness, earn respect. So we spend our entire lives seeking something from people that only God can give us. See, God's grace is God giving us himself. Verses 6 and 7, we see the goodness of God, his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. And Paul writes in the book of Romans that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And then in verse 8 and 9, we see the generosity of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. The apostle John says everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been, has been born of God. So grace is God's love and action toward people who merited the opposite of love. God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. God sending his only son to the cross to descend into hell so that guilty sinners might be reconciled to God. How do you receive a gift do you have to work for it? Do you have to grovel for it? Do you have to beg and plead for it? No, all you do is believe and receive it. Faith. Believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross. And God's work of grace in you calls you into a living fellowship with Jesus, raises you from death to life, seals you as his own by the Spirit of God, and transforms you into the image of Christ, and he will finally raise your dead body in glory. So by the simplicity of what God did by grace through faith.
His work of grace in you leads to His work of grace through you, which leads to our third reminder. Paul reminds them of the simplicity in knowing why they exist. He says, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not good works for salvation. It is good works after salvation. It is good works that come after our faith in Christ. See, these good works here are done out of devotion to Christ, not out of duty. They're a glorious response of people who know their identity in Christ. They bring great joy and excitement. These works are a response of a genuine, heartfelt love for Jesus that says, Jesus is my first love. So, the question is, do you remember when you fell in love and knew that he or she was the one? You remember that? Some of you might be sooner than others. The feeling of that white hot love, that passion, that excitement, that honeymoon phase where you would do anything for your spouse. You wanted to spend time with them. You wanted to talk with them. You just wanted to be with them. There was a love, a first love there for your spouse. In the same way, do you remember when you trusted Christ and you passed from death to life? Your love for Jesus was white hot. He was your first love. You were willing to do whatever he asked, go wherever he wanted you to go and be whatever he wanted you to be for his sake. You couldn't get over how great God was. You were astonished at the gospel of grace and its simplicity. You couldn't get over his goodness and generosity. Let me ask you a question. Is that still your condition? Is that your condition today? It's easy to let that love in our hearts get crowded out and covered up by living. Maybe what was a once white-hot love is now a distant memory and feeling at best. If so, you're not alone. It leads us to our third Ephesian experience, part three. Look what happened to these Ephesians in 30 years. You remember, Paul wrote the book, In about AD 62, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 2 writes in about AD 90 to 95, about 30 years had passed. And Jesus had something to say to this church. He said to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Listen to what he says. He says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus is commending them. They're still, bring, they're still working, but he brings a stinging critique on the heels of this commendation. 
He says, but I have this against you. What was the problem? You have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place. In other words, he was saying, listen to me very closely. He was saying, you're going to lose your spiritual influence unless you repent. Unless you agree that you're wrong and God is right. Jesus is telling the people in Ephesus, he sees their works, he sees their toil, he sees their patience, he sees they're probably an orthodox group of folk. But they're doing all of this stuff for the wrong reason, with the wrong motivation, not out of love, but out of duty, going through the motions checking a box to score points with God instead of out of a first love for Jesus. They had become what J.D. Greer calls professional Christians. They had the facts down, but their hearts were cold. Their motivations were misdirected. There was a huge gap between what they knew and what they what they felt in their heart, the affections that well up when Jesus is first place in our lives. They needed a reawakening to the gospel. Jonathan Edwards likens this reawakening to a man that knows in his head that honey is sweet, that is what he knows, but for the first time he had that sweetness burst alive in his mouth, what he feels. It's one thing to know Jesus is sweet intellectually, but it's quite another to have that sweetness burst alive in our hearts. That's what he was saying was the issue. So Jesus tells him what to do. Look what he tells him. He says, remember from where you've fallen, they'd let go of their first love, their affection for Christ was noticeably different, and this was serious because they were in danger of losing their spiritual influence in the lives of people around them. He says, repent, change your mind, admit you're wrong that God is right, and return and do the works you did at first with a first love orientation. So Jesus is giving them a map here how to orient their lives to a real-world situation of first love. Here's the reality, folks. We're all given maps from different sources on how we should be living our lives. You're following a map today. Whether you want to realize it or not, you're following a map. We've looked at God's map today on how to orient our lives. And the question for us this morning is, are we going to follow God's map? Let me close with this, with this illustration. In the Kingdom of Ice, a book 
is Hampton Side's compelling account of the failed 19th century polar expedition of the USS Jeannette, contained by, Lewis, by Lieutenant George DeLong. It's another cautionary tale about the hazards of misorientation, not because of a faulty compass, but because of a mistaken map. DeLong's entire expedition rested on a picture of the unknown North Pole laid out in the ultimately diluted maps of Dr. August Heinrich Petermann. Petermann's map suggested a thermocentric gateway through the ice that opened into a vast polar sea on top of the world. A fair weather passage beyond all the ice. DeLong's entire expedition was staked on these maps. But it turned out he was heading to a world that didn't exist. As perilous ice quickly surrounded the ship, Sides recounts the team had to shred its organizing ideas and all their unfounded romance and to replace them with the reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. Our culture often sells us faulty, fantastical maps of the good life that paint alluring pictures that draw us toward them. All too often, we stake the expedition of our lives on them, setting sail toward them with every sheet hoisted, and we do so without even thinking. It's not until we're shipwrecked that we realize we trusted faulty maps. Are you following a fantastical map of a good life that is leading you away from God? Or are you following a map that's taking you deeper into the gospel of the grace of God? If you're shipwrecked today, you probably have been following a faulty map. And my question to you this morning is, will you turn to Jesus and his map for your life? Maybe you've lost your first love. You've been deviating from the compass of truth. Maybe it's only been a small two-degree deviation. Will you remember? Will you repent? Will you return? I want to pray for you this morning, and there will be people who will be willing to pray with you as well. But I want to pray that as God has spoken to each of our hearts here this morning, that we would simply say yes to him.